0: Welcome to episode 24 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, and I am joined, as always, by my awesome co-host and
1: the best Civil War nerd that I know, Darren Weeks. Thank you so much. She was like, just yesterday, you called me just Darren. Remember that? You just said you're just Darren. Not good, not bad. You're just Darren. But in any case, thank you, Mary. It's great to have it on. And today's this very special night. For a lot of different reasons, we are going to talk about something we've wanted to talk about for a long time, which was the early days of John Wilkes Booth. An interesting topic. We're going to talk about this. And we're not going to talk about the assassination. We're not going to talk about the escape. We're not going to talk about how we lived to get to eat in Oklahoma. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. We're just going to talk about some of the early days. As much as people were surprised as what happened, the assassination shocked the whole world. Some of the people closest to him were also surprised. So just some of these quotes. Kitty Brink, a wardrobe assistant at Ford's Theater, said he was nothing like the terrible deeds he did suggest. Actor John Matthews said a most winnable, captivating man. L.J. Ferguson of Ford's Theater said a marvelous, clever, and amusing demigod. And they were stunned when this happened. So we figured to get to the bottom of what made John Wilkes Booth tick, we would bring in our friend, Lisa Samia, who is a award-winning author and she's someone who's done a lot of uh, speeches on John Wilkes Booth. So we figured we want to talk about Booth, we got to bring Lisa in. So welcome, Lisa. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight.
0: Welcome to the Civil War Breakfast Club, Lisa. We're so happy to have you join us tonight to talk about something Darren and I have been interested in for most of our lives, which is John Wilkes Booth and obviously the assassination, but we are more than interested in just that. Um, Just because Booth is a figure who didn't just appear on April the 14th, 1865. Mm -hmm. There's a story there that I think to understand the assassination, to even understand Abraham Lincoln better and even the Civil War a little bit more, is to know Booth in his early days. And we are obviously going to also talk about his sister, Asia, who he was incredibly close with. So welcome, Lisa. And we're Thank so happy to have people. you here.
2: I'm really looking forward to this tonight. and Welcome, everyone. One of the best ways that we can learn, try to understand John Wilkes Booth, I always think of him like an onion skin. Like, you know, the closer you try to, you know, peel away, it's still more and more layers that, that we that we can't get to. Because he was such a complicated, figure but one way that we do get to know him in his early years and up until the time his early adulthood, he went off to act, is through his older sister Asia. Asia was the Booth family chronicler. She was, you know, writer, a poet, and she was incredibly close to her brother John. She was about two and a half years older than her brother. She wrote a memoir, but it was a secret memoir of her brother John. Uh, it's called the Unlocked Book. She wrote it in secret because in 1868. She she and her husband, John, left the United States. They moved to England. You know, the assassination was so terrible. And so she wrote it in secret. Her husband, John Sleeper Clark, blamed John for all of his problems. And here it's almost like a light is turned on in the Booth household and that we get to see him. Is And this we have to remember, too, that this book is from Recollections. This isn't a day-by-day diary account. These are her recollections, her memory. She wrote it in 1874, gave it out of the family, but it wasn't published until 1930. In this book, we, like I said, we do have a very good picture of John Wilkes from his sister Asia growing up in the Maryland countryside at Tudor Hall. That was the family home built around 1851, 1852 by their father. Unfortunately, he passed away in 1852 and did not live there. But we see a picture of both of them actually growing up in their teens in the Maryland countryside. So it's a very, very important piece that we have to learn about him as a family member and how he
1: was growing up. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of Booth, they think of Edwin, they think of people like that. I don't think a lot of people even heard of Asia. And the ironic thing about Asia is it was without a doubt, realistically, the closest person John had growing up with. You know, you right. mentioned the fact that his father died when he was re- relatively young, 1852, mm-hmm. kind of a loner a little bit. He was very headstrong, mm-hmm. very stubborn. Took him a little while to learn, but when he learned it, it was like a vice in his head. Very opinionated. Asia always seemed to be that rock. It seemed like that was the one bright spot in his life. You know, we talked before about some of the. I don't. You want to say he was born under a bad son. His mother had that premonition about him. Correct. He was six months old, or he was, when, mm-hmm. that she she felt that he was going to just live a very dark life. And you know, as he gets older. He has that experience at school with those gypsies, right? He's told he's going to die young. It's just going to be a, a very dark life for him. I think he was always felt like he was one step behind, and I think I think he had this feeling of darkness that seemed to surround him. But Asia was the one light in his life that seemed mm-hmm. to always kind of cast and kind of guide him on that right direction. He kind of went off in the wrong direction, as, as, as we'll talk about. But I think people need to realize just you know her importance. I mean, she's born eighteen thirty-five. Her life is is just as tragic in a lot of ways that's
2: what was also you know when booth assassinated the president he he assassinated more than just the president obviously who kept the union together he assassinated mary todd lincoln's husband their their children's father he destroyed the best chance of the south for reconstruction okay we know all of that, right? But right. what happened to the Booth family? What happened to Asia? And the type of life, we'll get into that, I guess, a little bit later. But what actually, what type of life, you know, she had and how tragic her life ended up being as well. Not only just, you know, mm-hmm. dying out besides that, but all the tragedy that, that surrounded her life, unfortunately. The thing that I picked
0: up from just reading Asia's book is that mm-hmm. definitely this closeness, definitely the rock. Darren has referred to her as the anchor as well, but also just that it was kind of like an, a them against the world sort of thing. It was always them together. Mm-hmm. Rosalie doesn't, she gets mentioned occasionally, but you can tell that Rosalie and Asia did not have a very close
2: relationship mm-hmm. at all. That's just the impression you know, what, that I what, what, got. I'm not sure why that was. I think Asia had a strong personality. And I think, I think one thing I did read about the Rosalie was that she, at one time, had a suitor that the father did not approve of once that happened she never attempted another romantic venture she seems like she probably fell into the quietness of life and she was very devoted to her mother that was kind of her role in the family so you're right i didn't get that sense of closeness with the two girls
0: it was probably the typical sibling relationship where they might have bickered a little bit whereas john and asia were definitely very very close siblings you know as the as the book progresses you know they're the ones that really tough winter they had they're going out to check the animals traps together you know and it almost seemed like they they were the two that were looking after the family in some respects
1: yeah and you talk about just some of the the problems they had i mean certainly they're a famous family right you hate to say it but they're like they're like the 19th century kardashians in a way Everyone um, knew who they all were. They lived in a they lived in a fishbowl. Every chance that someone took to take a shot at them, they would. Junius Brutus Booth, he was someone who he was like the, the modern day Axl Rose on the stage. Sometimes he would just flip out, yell at people, not come on, suffered through melancholy. His son Joseph had to eventually tour with him to make sure he got there. So you think about the difficultness that must have been growing up. As they get a little bit older, the secret of Junius comes out, which right. is going to be a devastating thing for that family when, when Marie Christine Adelaide Delanois shows up, who had been allegedly was was married to Junius 25 years prior. He never divorced her. He comes back and he ends right. up marrying Marianne Holmes and she shows up and starts causing all kinds of problems with the family. Right when you know John Wilkes is nine years old, this is all hitting a celebrity family all at one time at that age
2: correct. So what happened was in about late 1846, early 1847, the appearance of Adelaide Delaney Booth in Baltimore. Booth also had a Baltimore City residence along with Tudor Hall. They purchased that in 1845. They had a son, Junius and Adelaide had a son, Richard. You know, he told his mother, he says, you know, he has another family. There were 10 children, uh, six of which survived to adulthood. And so she comes and she's like, excuse me, we are married. And that was an unbelievable event. She just leapt at Marianne. And from what I understand, one of the the things that came out, and it was a quote, I believe, from the Baltimore American, that when Adelaide saw Marianne in the, she would go to sell her vegetables from the farm, she would be in the, you know, in the stall and Adelaide would just attack her call her all of these terrible names. This was a very, very public and humiliating thing for Mrs. Booth to go through. But it also said that she would also call whatever child was with her a bastard. So just do the math in our heads a little bit. What child or children would have been with Marianne? Would she have taken Rosalie or Asia? Would she have taken the girls? More than likely it would have been either John and or Joseph his his younger brother
1: Mary, you want to handle this math question by the way you want to jump in on this one <laughs> she, she's not good at math, so you, you can't uh, say the M word.
2: I can't imagine,
0: though, how, like, it, it definitely, you know, I think definitely John or Joseph, but to he, for John, he being nine years old at the time, to nine hear years that, old. that yeah. what that would have done to a kid.
2: You know, I think that, I think this is again my opinion. What I've read from history is that John's older sister Rosalie, when John was 20, told him what that was all about. I just question that because, again, we're talking a celebrity family, right? Let's go back to that. I don't really know a lot of the, you know, big Hollywood acting, you know, people or whatever, but like a superstar family. He was exposed to that, How did that affect him in a subliminal way in his attitudes towards women, in his attitudes towards men? Again, Darren and Mayor, the incident at Tudor Hall when he was, I think, probably 14 years old, 15. They had an overseer. He was overworking the animals. I guess Mrs. Booth said something at the time. And this, this man, this George Hagen, was furious, ignored her, whatever, and called her, you know, some kind of name. And then when John heard of it, he went after the fellow, and he clubbed him, like guess, with a cudgel or, or, or something. Mm-hmm. You have to think, and I think, where is that coming from? Okay, there was no ladies at Tudor Hall. It was an insult, but his reaction was so intense. And then let's look at his attitude towards women. Again, if we went through all the girlfriends and everything, that would be for a whole other lecture. <laughs> exactly. Not going- I mean, that playboy mentality, you know, and the overprotectiveness of his sister Asia and his mother and his sister, his other sister, especially when Asia was getting ready to be married. And what John said to Asia prior to her wedding, just remember that uh, your name is dour enough for anyone. Remember, you know, you could be a professional stepping stone. He's telling his sister, this guy is NG. This guy, he's just in it to win it. You know, he's in it because of the booth name. Later on, John Sleeper Clark... Asia's husband and Edwin are partners in the theater and managers, so it did pay off to marry a Booth, now didn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Didn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, he had. I think he had that whole "no one's good enough to marry my sister" thing. Oh, there was great. that too. I think the I whole, the, you know, the whole thing that ran into his mud with with Marianne and with uh, Adelaide at the, at the the market there. I think it gave him a protection of females and his family that he stuck mm-hmm. with. It, all, it, it almost became like his core, right? Mm-hmm. So when you see these stories of the kids growing up and they're running around playing in the snow at Tudor Hall, you know, the incident with, with George Hagen that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, he's this plowshare guy and he's yelling at the slaves and, and causing all these problems and John gets grabs Dr. Fieldgood and has over there and puts it upside his head. <laughs> yep. He does that because he insulted the women, right? right? To your what you said a minute ago, he... He goes, you come, you better come apologize to the ladies at the house. And he goes, there are no ladies at that house, and that's what set John off. And then whack, right? I think all the things that happened with him growing up, I think he had his mother. I mean, he was clearly a mother's boy. You know, he, he, oh, he didn't want to go favorite. fight in the war, yeah. right?
2: He was a favorite. Yep, absolutely.
1: Between Marianne and Asia, they were the two, I think the two things in his life that proved that all the prophecies that he felt about himself, that he had this goodness in his life and them too. And mm-hmm. he was going to protect them any way he possibly could. Mm-hmm. And that was the one constant all the way through. That's all right. the way through his all the way through his life and right up to the very end for him. And so, you know, you mentioned before with the girlfriends and things like that. When he's writing that Valentine's day to Lucy Hale, right? And he's up all night long struggling to write. Right. And that's February 14th. 1965. Right, right. Just a couple months before. And he's sitting with Asia to try to write these words out. And he's nervous and he's trying to write the words. It seems that whenever he needed someone to go to, it was Asia. He didn't always say why he needed her help, but the fact that she was there always seemed to be a strength to him and gave him strength. I think when he, he was at that point, obviously he was going he was going down a very dark road mentally. There's no doubt what was going on in the war, what was going on in his own mind. You know, he was drinking, he was he was hitting life pretty good as a celebrity. But I think he always fell back to them, especially Asia is something to grab onto when he was sinking, that he could, that that yeah. would be his constant. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we, we do know that when Asia married John Sleeper Clark in April of 1859, John came up from Richmond because from 1858 to 1860, remember he was in Richmond at the Richmond Theater. He was, you know, a stock player, actor, and he traveled up. After they made their home in Philadelphia, John would stop. I mean, he would visit her when his travels allowed. He would stop at her home. He was welcome there. Because we also have to remember, after John left Tudor Hall, um, it must have been some time in early 1857, because 1857... His future brother-in-law, John Sleeper Clark, got him his first gig at the Arch Street Theater in uh, Philadelphia. After that, after he left Tudor Hall, he had no home. He would visit Sister Asia. He would see uh, Edwin and, you know, Mary Devlin when they lived, his wife, when they lived in Dorchester, Massachusetts for a short time. And then when they moved to New York. I mean, but think about it. They really had no home. So, you know, she was an anchor. uh, Definitely. Definitely. She was she was very important, I think, in his life as a support. All of these things that he had going for him, still he still went down that terrible path.
1: His reputation was big for John, like you mentioned before. He was always living in the shadow of Edwin, his older brother, mm-hmm. who was who was more famous. Living up to the father, whatever daddy issues he had from the father. There's, there's always that. He always felt he was being looked down upon for being the other Booth, right? But mm-hmm. I think he spilled a little of that on a John Sleeper Clark as well, because Booth, he's you know he's doing King Richard, he's doing Pescara, he's doing all these. Shakespearean roles. And then he sees this guy marrying his sister, who really was the Jim Carrey of his day able to project a little bit of what he felt about Edwin onto John's sleeper. I think that was a big part of why he didn't like him.
0: I think that was a huge thing. And I know I think Asia in her book, she remarks about when they performed Julius Caesar together, how Edwin was intimidated or seemed Mm -hmm.
2: intimidated by John. Edwin was, you know, and and a little bit about the acting. I mean, I know there's been, you know, some authors who who state that, you know, John hated Edwin. I'm sure and, and like we're discussing right now, there are levels of sibling rivalry. We just talked about, you know, Asia and Rosalie. When Edwin got married in 1860, John was the only Booth at the wedding and he turned and he hugged his brother and he kissed him. When Mary Devlin Booth, when when she died, I believe in February of 1863 in Dorchester, Massachusetts, John came up to be with his brother. Now, again, I know there's different levels. that You know, people said the course was set. I look at, you know, a family member who has gone through, who was at a wedding, And that's a beautiful time for a family member. That's the best of time. So he was there for the best of time. And then he was there for the worst of time. Well, they were rivals. Yeah, I mean, you know, Edwin voted for Lincoln and, and Booth, as we know from day one.
1: Edwin, he was someone who I think challenged himself more as an actor because he, he performed more in the North where the name wasn't as famous. Whereas Hi. John loved Richmond because everyone knew who he was. He was in front of the home crowd. You mentioned he went to boarding school with Fitzhugh Lee with mm-hmm. a lot of those Southern planter kids, those rich kids. And you can see how all the time he spent in the South, he really felt... You could picture him getting on stage in Richmond. The crowd is cheering, yelling for his name. You know, back then when you went to a theater, it wasn't like you just sat there and watched. You participated. You, They were yelling back and forth. And you could see that he was on top of the world there. So he really fell in love with the South. And so as the Civil War began and continued, he took a personal ownership. And as he saw Edwin more towards the North, like most of the Booth family was, I think whatever divide they had was exacerbated because I think he saw every flaw between him and Edwin and he put the politics into it and used the politics right. as a wedge. And I, think, yeah. and I think that was probably the biggest thing. I think by the end, what he saw Edwin, he almost saw Lincoln. He saw somebody with his name representing the antithesis of everything he believed in. I think that was a big part of, of the issue with Edwin going forward too. Mm-hmm. Besides just the sibling stuff, I think that that that's not always going to be there. Yeah, I mean, their
2: style was so different. You know, it, it, it just was, as you know, John Booth was known for his swash buckling and his his sword fights very very intense and it was it was said that you know when he would sometimes when he would finish a play he would just like lay like this in the back and you know like he couldn't get up for ten or fifteen minutes because he left it all on the stage, but he was very very physical you know he spent a lot of time honing his body and in, in today's vernacular we'd probably call, we call him a gym rat right but you know it paid off I mean it was like he was quick as a cat on his feet. Marveling the audiences and and Edwin I, I don't really hear or have read so much about that type of acting so in that respect they had I think very different approaches to their to their roles and and how they act
1: they were still amicable you know November 25th 1864 they performed together of the winter Garden New York City to Correct. raise money for that Shakespeare statue that's still there you can go still yep. see it Mary mm-hmm. if you want to New York City, most of the the statue that the Wilk brothers, the blue brothers, put up, um, but I, but I think I think there's a lot of stuff that they kind of came together. But at that point, I think the die was cast with a lot of things with John. I think all the issues that popped up throughout his life, all kind of, it's the ball was rolling. I the think
0: politics were definitely
1: coming the into politics, it at that point.
2: You know, and, and, yeah, and as as you know, as as the war went on, you know, it is said that he said actually that he did not join the Confederacy because of a promise he made to his mother. She would not give him her blessing to enlist. She would not give up this son. This was her favorite son. Mrs. Booth had buried four children, three in 1833. Oh, that must have been unbelievable. And one, I believe in 1836. These are all before John was born, of course, but she would not give up this son she said no but we do know from Asia that he was a smuggler you know for quinine and 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 things like that but that was very interesting I mean I I kind of go back and forth you know he was so strong-minded and he was so intent I could see him as a cavalryman you know because remember and he was an expert horseman you could see him that way but he didn't and, and I still, you know, and he says it's because he made a promise to his mother.
0: My opinion of it is <laughs> that I think that's very much the case, that it was the promise okay. he made to his mother. And he struggled with that. He struggled okay. with it quite a bit. And so that explains the blockade running, the drug smuggling, all the mm-hmm. other stuff in ways that he could somehow participate in this cause mm-hmm. that he believes so strongly in the South. But because of how he felt about the women in his life that he was closest with his mother and his sister, he was not about to wrong his mother in that way, knowing that she would not, not give her blessing. And I think he struggled with that. And I think that led to a lot of what is happening to him at the end of the civil war, especially with the fall of Richmond, just that one, like there's that one speech that Asia has in the book where he's going on about, you know, Lincoln and and the South and all that. And just to see how passionate he was about that. I, I can't, it, like, it must have been hard for him. I, I don't think he was like, people have labeled him as a coward for not enlisting, but I think it was just that might've been his mother.
2: You know, well, he I can make a little
1: line and back off. He called himself you know? a
2: coward, right? He called himself a coward. He, that's mm-hmm. documented for not enlisting. Yeah. He called himself a coward. Mm-hmm. Yet yeah. when you look at the whole big picture, further this, you know, the pebble in the water when you further this, mm-hmm. how much worse of a cowardly act than to shoot a man an unarmed man in the back of the head, just this. That yeah. just shows you, I think, how how really truly misguided. You know, we thought Lincoln was a tyrant, but
1: I mean, you can see you can see you know he's in Richmond. He's he's feels like he's the son of the South, and yeah. he sees Abraham Lincoln in his mind, which is what a lot of the people in the South thought at the time that he was becoming some sort of king, some sort of tyrant. And one thing, John Wilkes Booth was a was a really big fan of George Washington. He was like, no way can this guy. Take a third term when George Washington didn't. And it was, he talks about Asia, talks about in her diary. In his mind, he was being patriotic, defending the Constitution. This is way before the, I'm saying this is during 1864 and everything was kind of going. What's interesting about this, though, you mentioned before, he said he was making $20,000 a year, which is big, big money. It's like Mary money. You know,
2: I'd like to know, can anyone convert that in today's money? Mayor? Oh, God. Yeah,
1: Yeah, you don't want her to trust me. A billion dollars. She'll say it's (laughs) $7.28. But okay, you know what, though? I'm sorry, just <laughs> no, it's okay. Wow, you caught no right on. You she, she figured you out pretty quick. But, but you know what, though? What, what I was always kind of funny, though, is this is a guy who was making big money. People would show up at Tudor Hall looking for Dr. Booth because they were trying to mm-hmm. stick, sneak quinine through the lines. Oh yeah. He was somebody who was a smuggler but still protected his mother. Isn't it funny how different he ended up being than John Surratt, who was also a smuggler who went against his mother? Yeah, yep. How it's a one eighty. How funny that is sometimes.
2: I mean, they you they know? wanted him. They took her instead. Right. They wanted yeah. him because he's up. hiding up out. He's right. hiding. Up. He's oh, hiding
0: right. in my country. Well, yeah, thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Mary Surratt though. Yeah. Got to represent right here. So.
2: Yeah.
1: like my coffee mug.
2: His name, his name, uh, John Wilkes, he was named, we believe, by his paternal grandfather. That is, you know, the Wilkes name, that, that John Wilkes, it was for the English radical and politician. And he said he, he grew up very proud of that name because it meant liberty. Like you said, this is from the time
1: he was, you know, very young. I keep going back to the whole gypsy thing. And I know some people think that's kind of overrated, but he talks about it. He told Asia, you know, he says, the gypsy said, I was to have a grand life, no matter how short it was to be grand. So he kept going back to that. So for him, it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy he had that he had a short term to whatever, whatever he thought was going to be what was going to make him famous, whatever was going to be acting, whatever was going to be. I think he always knew he had a short time. And I think he kind of played into it himself a little bit psychologically. But he still had Asia as his backbone. And it kept going back to her. That was his reality. Whenever he got drifted, she'd pull him back into reality. At
2: the time of his death, he had a gold medal on his neck and it was D, which is Latin for Lamb of God. Asia converted to Catholicism when she attended the Sisters of the Carmelite Convent in Baltimore, Maryland. She converted. It's to wonder, and and I know uh, Darren, you and I kind of keep going back, who really could have given that to him? History gives us no clue. History doesn't tell us who gave him that, but I know that you have a very strong sense if you believe it was her, it was Sister Asia, that are protecting.
1: He was saying yeah, the other night. I think there's obviously no way to prove that, but right. it just seems that there. It's too some. You know, there's no such thing as coincidences in life. There really are, aren't. You know, yeah. he was someone who was not the yeah. most. He was not a church-going person. I mean, he's like yeah. Mary in that regard. does you know, burst into flames. He walked into church, but but I think but I think what happened was I think he she became Catholic, and I think what happened was I think that was his way of knowing. That she was going to be with him, and I think he knew that from April fourteenth on, that was going to be the end of his life, mm-hmm. and that was his lifeline wow. to her. Even though he knew he'd never see her again, yeah. so in my opinion, he he, that he, because yeah, why else would he wear it? Where did he wear it? That's the whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and that's you no know reason why? You
2: know, at the time of his death, he was secretly engaged to Lucy Hale, mm-hmm. right? abolitionist uh, daughter from uh, senator from from New Hampshire.
1: The awful state of Connecticut, <laughs> by the way.
2: Hampshire, <laughs> New Hampshire, New
0: Hampshire, New, He's New, New, New Hampshire.
1: New <laughs> oh, Whatever it is, all the same.
0: <laughs> I definitely do agree with the two of you that, yeah, it's one of these things in the historical record that we don't have the facts, but sometimes you have to read between the lines. And I think it makes the most sense that Asia would have given him something like that and that he would have worn it because she says rock. So that's the lifeline. And I, I mean, he knew by either very late on April 14th, 1865, or the early morning hours back. of 1865. That was it for him. He was, he only had days, maybe weeks left to live. Lucy Hale, I, I don't know that she would have given him something like that and that he would have worn it. We, I think it's had, more coming from Asia.
2: Well, he had five photographs of, you know, visiting cards of, of yep. five ladies. One was Lucy. That's your yep. one and only, what are you doing with all the other ones? I so know. Yeah. You take that out of the mix, then this is a very personal thing on your neck. Right. Yeah. He was, you know, saying he loved Lucy, and and again, this is not for me to question or quantify or anything because matters of the heart are matters of the heart. That's it. But you know, dig a little bit deeper, and you know, for something like that on his neck, why would he have have had it? It's a Catholic medal. I mean, I don't know the denominations of the other ladies, and and again, it could have been someone else, but. Mm-hmm. I really like I really like the way you guys think of that because a lot of my lectures I always say you know mindful it's never just words on a page so when you look into that and you look at their relationship I kind of like your argument thought process to get to, get well, to that when,
1: when you're in your toughest worst situation. You always want to have some kind of anchor that it helped you, no matter what it be. Some people use religion, some people use alcohol, whatever it's whatever it is, right? You, you knows <laughs> they do. I mean, but you just want to have whatever whatever it was the most important thing at that moment in the most important time. For him, it was that medal, right? Because yeah. he he didn't give it away, he didn't try to do anything, yeah. he didn't try to trade it. He had it on him the whole way. So whatever that lamb of God thing was. Like we said before, you know, yeah, he told her he was going to be a Christian and Catholic and all that. But I think at the end of the day, he wore that for her. And again, there's no one, no, and you know what, no one will ever know one way or the other, but, but it just, it just seems like it would make sense.
0: Yeah, no, it does make sense. And I'm it like does, that. you know, we're, like not, we're not wrong we're not wrong in our opinion we're not wrong
2: we're not right it's just you know if you if you read between the lines it it kind of gravitates you know to that knowing knowing their closeness and something I want to share with you both tonight speaking of Asia and John and you know the Carmelite Mm -hmm. sisters and I like to share this you know with, with your audience I was doing some research for another lecture um I just did over the weekend and I wanted to find the dates that Asia was actually at the Carmelite convent in Baltimore. And again, it's just nice to have points of reference, right? As you're going on your timeline. Right. And so I looked it up. The sisters of Carmelite, they, you know, they have a website. and like, Oh, this is cool. They have other archives. So I'm popping in Asia's name, try to find the dates up. Oh, can't find the dates, but I can read you from the archives of the sisters of the Carmelite in Baltimore, Maryland correspondence, by Asia Booth Clark, 1865, 1875. And it goes from also, it says here, uh, September 5th, 1868 to March 22nd, 1875. And I'm going to read you what was on the summary page um, of what I understand are three letters written by Asia Booth Clark while she was in England to a former teacher. And I'm going to read you a summary paragraph Former student of Mother Teresa Sewell, Asia writes three letters about her life in both England and the continent. She compares religious environment of both. English are a cold, bigoted people and so intolerant of Catholics and so bitter about Catholics and rituals that France is a welcome change and like a different world where possessions and devotions are frequent and sustaining of faith. Then she goes on to narrate a story of her daughter's exercise of the love of the poor creating a doll lottery uh, of their own toys. Now, I, I was looking at that and I really was like, oh, okay. I did take this information to a Booth historian and I was told this is an original discovery.
0: That's, this is why history is so cool.
2: Unbelievable. So you find
0: this stuff when you dig around, right?
2: Mm. Just you know, and I was like, just like that, I had I had no words. So someone likes to talk about this stuff. I had no words. So what I did was I contacted the uh, archivist at the at the convent. I did put in a formal request, respectfully, for copies and/or procedures and in how to actually get a copy of this. And we don't know what it is. It, it looks like from that little bit of summary. It looks like she's talking about, well, we know she was very unhappy in England, right? Mm-hmm. You know that the, her marriage had soured and husband wasn't faithful. It's a whole bunch of unpleasant things. So she would, she was corresponding with a former teacher. And we think about that in our own lives, you know, as, as, as a teacher or a mentor, who's always kind of guiding us on our path. And if we, for feeling bad or we're in trouble, where do we go? Yeah, we have family and friends and whatever. But we have a tendency to to go that direction too. So I was very excited to share that with you. Certainly, you know, it's COVID, obviously. So we need to, you know, understand there may not be an avenue right now yeah. to extract this information. So we need, need to be patient, and and of course, me, I'm like, get me that now. But you know, we can't do that. I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, when you when
0: you have something like that, you want it. Oh
2: my God! And okay, get right you know, it's 140 years. I guess I can wait another month or two. You know. Yeah.
1: Well, but that's, that's really that's the, awesome. That's Indeed. the amazing thing, too, though, it's just what else is out there. The, the real shame of the whole thing was after the assassination, the government was taking anything that he had filled out, had signed anything he'd done, and just destroyed it. And so there's so much history that is just gone. He
2: burned anything they had of him, like, let's remember... Right it wasn't in your best interest to have anything of John Wilkes Booth in your possession at that time with, you know, the government was just coming in and scooping up people and throwing them in yeah. jail. And the heck with you. Well, at least
1: right? they're, they're never going to get my bobblehead. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> I love that. Bobble they're not head. getting this. The reality is though, is all kinds of history is just lost. And that's yeah. the shame of it. And you wonder how many of these, these little gaps that we're talking about filling in these gaps between, like you mentioned the whole thing with the Agnes <laughs> Necklace. Mm-hmm. How many things are just gone to history that mm-hmm. could really tell a lot more stories about these people? Now, we mentioned after the, for the assassination, all the hell the Booth family went through. Edmund would, would tell Asia, John is dead to us, consider him gone. You had all the issues over in England with of with Clark, with Asia, fighting the ghosts. You know, there's that story where you know, their son was about 10 getting teased in England about uncle john and that's how he found out about the assassination the first time
2: deal with it i mean it's terrible you know i mean she couldn't do i mean i think think she saw him
0: crumbling before her eyes like her brother like lose slowly starting to disintegrate into this this darkness i think she had always been able to pull him out of that before if that ever happened but this was one time when she couldn't Mm
2: -hmm. darren it's like you said earlier it's like he was born for this destiny. The messages of the gypsy, the message the mother saw in the flames with the word country when he was just six months old. All of these things were just propelling him towards this ignoble end. I, I really, I, I kind of like the way the way you frame that. I'd like to get into just a little bit, if I may, a little bit of Asia's life after the assassination. I do have a few paragraphs here I'd like to share with you. What happened was after... Asia left the United States in 1868 with her husband, John, and her children. She wrote uh, three books. One was in 1866, right after the assassination. It's called Booth Memorials, Passages, Incidents, and Anecdotes in the Life of Junius Brutus Booth. And in the second paragraph of the introduction, she says, Calamity without precedent has fallen on our country. We have all families secure in domestic love and retirement, a stricken desolate. The name we would have been wreathed in laurels is dishonored by a son, his well-beloved, his bright boy, Absalom. Asia's talking about the reference from the Bible of King David's son, Absalom. It was his third son, his favorite son. John Wilkes was the favorite son. He was also the third booth son. The story of Absalom is that not only was he a handsomest man in the kingdom, You know, John Wilkes Booth was considered the handsomest man in America, right? Probably a people cover magazine now. He, in fact, rose up against his own father, tried to steal his kingdom, whereupon he wasn't successful and he ended up destroying himself. Again, this was put in the second paragraph of the introduction. And I believe that she put it there on purpose not to be missed stating unequivocally the author's pain. It's in the introduction, You know how you open the book, we say, okay, it's, it's like right there. Even before she starts, she starts the book. She talks about now, uh, in the aftermath of the assassination, she said it was like the days of Bastille in France. People were being incarcerated. Someone sent up by her servant. This is when she was in Philadelphia that the announcement that on hearing the news, Mrs. J.S. Clark went insane and she was in an asylum. She says, the tongue of every man and woman was free to revile and insult us. She says, every man's hand was against us. From the diary of John Wilkes Booth, an excerpt from one of the 12 days he was on the run, April 21st, 1865, he says, after being hunted like a dog through swamps, woods, and last night being chased by gunboats, Till I was forced to return wet, cold, and starving with every man's hand against me. I am here in despair. Asia, in her book, The The Unlock Book, she goes on to talk about Edwin Booth. And she says that her husband, Clark, was going to dissolve the partnership uh, with him. Remember I said earlier, they were partners and managers. She said, well, this was a generous offer made when Edwin Booth had all the world against him. Let's just take a look at those three phrases interesting. Every man's hand was against us. This is Asia in her book in 1874 with every man's hand against me. John Wilkes Booth, April 1865 and all the world against him when she's talking about Edmund. That again is from 1874. It's interesting that John would use this phrase in his diary and it's interesting too that in 1874 she would use two variations of the same phrase. Again, you know, when I give these lectures or these talks, it's never just words on a page. I wanted to look a little bit deeper because those phrases called to me as I was looking. They just kind of jumped out. I thought perhaps it came from Shakespeare, but it actually comes from the Bible. From the King James Bible, Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, it reads, and he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The King James Bible was authorized but for use. In the worship of the Episcopal Church, the booths were raised Episcopalians. Perhaps it's a coincidence, Darren, we don't always believe in the mayor, you don't either, that both the brother and the sister would use a variation of this phrase in their writings. I have come to understand it was a commonly used expression. I didn't realize that till I got a little bit deeper, but I found it really incredible that it was used during times of great despair for both of them. Another common allele, that this brother and sister
1: share. I do know how many times they may have said that phrase, because they obviously felt like they were alone. I was just thinking up. that, like, how
0: many right. letters don't we have from them where they wrote that to each other if yep. they were corresponding that way, or they were sitting together on that, like, they always seemed to sit on a porch swing.
1: Maybe he wrote that in his diary to let her know that he was somehow know, okay. That. Yep. that
2: was the other thing. Here's the question it was written in 1865. She left the United States in 1868. Did she see his diary?
1: Yeah. 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 There you go. That's those historical gaps we were talking about, yep. those things. we will never know. Yep. But it's yep. fun to speculate, though. We, yep. You know, Mare and I talk about the what if thing all the time with the history stuff, the war and the battles. Mm-hmm. And this is a good one, too, because you, you wonder just how much they're almost like twins in a way. They, they kind are. of thought a certain way, like they, you kind of pitch them just thinking the way they did. So you wonder how much they would have uh, really felt akin to each other and, and, you know, how many things they did that we just don't know about as far as just the mental stuff. They
0: they definitely have a very twin-like bond, I think. They could, I think, read each other very, very well.
2: It's interesting, too, that if you notice in the book, she ends her memoir of her brother, John, with a line from Shakespeare. She says, so runs the world away. So runs the world away. It's from Hamlet. It's act three, scene two. The full line is, for some must watch while some must sleep. So runs the world away. And it gave me pause as to try to decipher what Asia was trying to tell us about her brother John here. Of all the all the lines in Shakespeare's, all the plays he performed, she chooses to, to end her memoir, the secret memoir of her brother John with this line. What is she trying to tell us? Mindful again, it is never just words on a page. This is how I read it. It's not so much that John Wilkes Booth, we know, performed in so many Shakespearean tragedies, right? And successfully. Is that I believe Sister Asia is telling us here that in the end, not only did John create the greatest of all American tragedies, he in fact became an American tragedy
1: himself. So in the end, he yep. he lived his his prophecy.
2: Yep, he did. Yeah,
1: he did, right? That's, I mean, his, that's
0: what I think that she's you know, saying here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's so his, taking history, it from Hamlet,
1: who yeah. had his own yeah.
0: downfall. Right.
1: right. right. His his history will show right. Booth, and by no means is anybody here gonna glorify what he did, but history yeah. shows Booth as this the perpetrator of the worst crime in American history okay, that's and that's right. how history and that's justifiably so justifiably but I how it, think, yeah. right but I think as you dive into someone like him you find out that the number one fabric in his life was his fondness to protect the women in his family mm-hmm. and the two biggest anchors in his life despite all the womanizing was his sister and his mother and mm-hmm. everything he did growing up was for them and try to outlive this thing that he yes. had that This 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 darkness that he was trying to live with.
2: She died in 1888 in England. And her last wish was to be buried in the Booth Plot at Baltimore, Maryland at Greenmount Cemetery. Now, John is buried there as well. He's buried with those three little children that died at Tudor Hall in 1833. And there's no marker for his grave. And the interesting thing is if you have been to Greenmount, you will see that Asia's gravestone says Mrs. J.S. Clark. And there's an obelisk Here's her grave, then there's an obelisk that Edwin Booth had put in honor of his father, has all the Booth children's name on it, and exactly across from that is John. They are as close as they can be in death as maybe they were, I don't know. They're just, they're together now, Yeah. you know, oblivion. When you go there, you can actually feel this palpable sadness. I mean, even it's a very beautiful cemetery. It's really old. Her friend, Jean Anderson is, is buried near there. You see the, there are many booth graves. The only ones who aren't buried there is brother Edwin, who's buried at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts with his wife, Mary. And his older brother, Junius, who I believe is buried, I wanna say Manchester by Manchester the Sea. Manchester
1: by the Sea, yeah, New Hampshire, yeah. Massachusetts, yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. yeah, Massachusetts,
1: okay. Massachusetts, so, Massachusetts, yeah.
2: Those two aren't, but, and even John's paternal grandfather, who we believe may have named him John Wilkes, is buried there. So you see all the family graves, mother, father, sister, Rosalie, yeah. The Joseph Booth eventually became a doctor, his second wife, Cora, his little, their little boy. And then there's just a big green patch. This empty mound. The statement is profound. It's an ignoble end for a terrible deed. So it was horrible. And even with all of this information that we have, we still go back to that point of reference. It was a hellacious American tragedy. So, yeah, yeah, for everybody involved, I think. I mean, like I said, her life in England was terrible. He, her husband, they became a little more strange. He led a separate life. She was writing to her friend, Jean Anderson, and she said, clearly not in jest, she only married John Sleeper Clark to her brother, Edwin. Ooh, yeah. Well, John knew that that's why he said what he
0: said to her what Edwin went through to you know just yeah. that they were painted with this brush for so long that this the family is now tainted and it's just yep. such a but as Darren said it's a fun study it's something I've always enjoyed looking at Booth beyond just the assassination to figure out why who was he and what led him to those events
2: you know the thing is is that we we don't have any more answers now, do we, after nope. discovering this? that we, we Because that's just a, one of those things. But it it kind of begs that question to go back and say, I wonder what's in those letters. So stay tuned, guys. Stay tuned. Yeah,
0: we're looking stay forward tuned. to that. That's what why history is history's oh my- so good. Like when you make, when you find a discovery like that.
2: It just shows you it's there. Be interesting. Yeah. Even if you mentioned your brother, John, you'd be like, oh my God.
1: Um, But enough to be able to try to fill in the dots a little bit, paint in the Mm -hmm. fill in the blanks and try to just try to guess and just try to wonder, you know, what what we know, the dynamic. And, you know, like we said before, studying him is an interesting, it's a a true American tragedy for so many people. You go back to Harry Rathbone, Claire Harris, um, all the people that were affected. And you can make a case that more than a case that his actions on April 14th to this day affect this country. Yes. It certainly affected, you know, the, the way the South, um, after the Civil War ended, Reconstruction, Reconstruction certainly.
2: Yeah, because um, the, was was like. Come back and and everything was reconciled and you know he was so ready to move forward with, with that promise and uh well he thought he was going to be a hero obviously and uh wow that was so misguided and was shocked i think when he read those papers you know brought by uh was it thomas harbin brought him those yeah. papers the pine he was,
1: thicket i always wonder if he had one of those holy crap what did i do moments at some I point think at it's- i think he had it at dr Mudds
2: i think he had it at dr muds you he had it dr Mudds i, I think, think it was dr. It when Mudd's. he wrote uh with every man's hand against me i think that was a flag or a way. Maybe if his sister saw that, that was a, maybe a message to her. That's yeah. Really good. I really,
0: really like that. Yeah, yeah I, I think mean, it started at Doctor muds I
2: think he was, you know, really? getting
0: ready, read, uh. getting ready in the morning, and looking at himself in the mirror when he was shaving, and kind of like, I might. I felt made. like the
1: only, the only guy in the planet probably felt like at that very time, the only guy in the world. Yeah. And he maybe, maybe he did some soul searching, like you know, whatever, whatever hateful buzz he was on did he wake up and say what did i do what yeah, did i do i
0: think that's where it you know? started and then yeah in the pine thicket it came to even more as he's reading not what he expected to read and yeah. it's just it's hitting him more and more as the days pass
2: but he was still trying to get away he, he was yep
1: well fight or flight you had to
2: know i mean he's you know he's in that barn and theatrical to the end yep. he's found by a canadian yeah yeah <laughs>
0: I had to get yeah. that in. Edward Doherty is a Canadian. So.
1: <laughs> one more stain on the old banner. Le-
0: leading the 16th, New York. All right, one for you guys. <laughs> yeah.
1: Definitely, definitely. So, Lisa, you got some stuff going on. We'll talk yeah. a little about what you got going on here for you. You know, well, Mary you. and I are signed up for your class. We're going to be taking yeah. here pretty soon. So, why don't you yeah, tell us a little about that. about that? What are you going
2: on. Um, that's going to be based. Um, it's an adult enrichment class through the Farmington Valley Adult Education. This is going to be based on my poetry and essay book. It's called The Nameless and the Faceless of the Civil War. It's a a collection of 28 poems and 20 essays on the Civil War. And what it is, is we're going to have a discussion of so many poems a night. And the premise of this book is that, we know that not everyone who experienced the Civil War made it into the history books. And it was inspired by uh, Michael Dougherty's book, Civil War Diary, when he was a prisoner of war. And he was from the 13th Pennsylvania Cavalry. And after I was reading so many of his entries about being in uh, Bell Island and Richmond Prison, and then when he got to Andersonville, we all know that that was a hellacious death camp. But it was only after I was reading, you know, he was saying, you know, 50 men died today, 100 men died today. And I'm like, well, who are they? And then that's when the thought came that what about all of the other unknowns, not just the unknown soldiers, but the unknown civilians and and things like that. And it just kept after me and kept after me. And then the creation came that I'm giving a voice to the unknowns. I I still can't give them a name or or a face but I can give them a voice to tell them of of their story. So each poem will reference a Civil War event. You know, we'll go over that through the rhyme and narrative of poetry. That's coming up in February. In April, I have a new book coming out, The Nameless and Faceless Women of the Civil War. It's the same premise and portions of that uh, book won me artist in residence through the National Parks Arts Foundation, National Park Service, Gettysburg for Poetry for 2020 in September. Unfortunately, COVID didn't make that happen. So I'm hoping it was postponed, not canceled. I'm hoping to get back on the schedule for some time this year. Also, um, I just want to share that I've also lectured at the Civil War Roundtable Congress. I've had a lecture on John Wilkes Booth sold out, as well as placed uh, number one on YouTube for my lecture for all Civil War Roundtable Congress. That was very exciting. I've also lectured at Blenheim, the Civil War Interpretive Center, the Edgar Allan Poe Museum in Richmond. And, uh, you know, quite a few other things. I've written two fictional uh, novels on uh, John Wilkes Booth. My name is John Singer. My name is Mrs. John Singer. And the interesting thing about those two books, there might be a third coming trilogy, is that the reason that I wrote them was because in 2012, I read this book and it was Asia's Words.
1: I do have that one.
2: Yep, you too. It was Asia's words about her brother John that made me want to bring the brother and sister together. She would forgive him and he would be repentant. And I created that in both my name is John Singer and my name is Mrs. John Singer. So it was because of her that I wrote about that I came to him.
0: Very cool. Wow. This was all very, very fascinating. Thank you, Thank you so much for this. The Aww. one thing that we do need to do before we close off for tonight, though, is we usually do this at the beginning, but we're going to do it at the end. And it's what we were all drinking tonight. It's our little tradition on Civil War Breakfast Club.
2: Oh, you want me to tell you? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Shot um, of
2: Iced tea. like <laughs> Nice. Um I think it's uh Fit and Lean or something. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that's that's me
1: <laughs> trying.
0: It, it's our tradition on here. Um so Darren, your turn.
1: Well, since we're talking about John Wilkes Booth, I'm drinking a beer called the Escape Plan, obviously, and I'm drinking it out of course out of my Mary Sarrat coffee uh, mug. So, gotta uh, stay in gotta stay in theme.
0: Well, Marlins. I had Mine was Life in the Clouds by Collective Arts Brewing. And I chose this one because they feature a different artist all the time on their cans. So this one had a full moon on it, which Ah. the moon is quite significant for this podcast because we love the 11th core. And the the symbol for that is the crescent moon. But um, this is a full moon. And that was what John Wilkes Booth would have seen when he was escaping from Washington.
2: Yeah, that's right. He said
0: to the guard, I thought I would ride home by the light of the full moon. And I saw that beer in my fridge and I was like, we're not going to talk about that part of it tonight, but I wanted to mention that. And then I'm drinking it out of my William Tecumseh Sherman mug because I don't have any mugs. Shockingly, I have a gigantic Civil War mug collection. I don't have any in reference to John Wilkes Booth or the assassination or anything like that. I chose William Tecumseh Sherman tonight because... It was on this day in 1861 that louisiana seceded and sherman was the superintendent at what would eventually become louisiana state university oh that's so cool
1: Excellent. And of course i got my bobblehead
0: yeah and we, got, we got, you know, we got, got know, our mascot know. for tonight too Do I a parting yeah. gift Do I- <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well this one doesn't have broken legs so it's not legit so it's like this <laughs> Make sure, a, make it's, sure it's the
2: left leg, right? Yeah, yeah the exactly. Medical. Yeah,
1: i'm a study. So that's that's yeah. pretty pretty but Anyway, Alicia, well, well, yes, we thank you so much for coming on. This is yeah, this was thank awesome. You. I hope I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I did. The, I hope
2: you guys yeah. did too. I hope your audience does. But yep. We all come away learning. That's what it's all
0: yeah. about. No, that's what we want to do. We wanted to get away from the one thing we like to do in this podcast, and this kind of goes back to you telling the story of these unknowns with with the poetry we like to tell some of the lesser known stories on this podcast. So that's why we've went into battles that are, you know, like stones river or the mud march that are kind of these footnotes in history. And we also try to tell the stories of the men that might not have the voice in history as well. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. We, yeah. We're, we're really looking forward to it, but yeah. And we just like to make them human and just tell a story so that people can learn something from it. And as we said at the beginning, uh, John Wilkes Booth has been somebody that Darren and I have been studying for from a lot of our lives and not just I can the assassination, tell. but, I can tell. I can tell. but just... Not- is excellent both of you yes. oh, thank you you are but yeah, we, we asked that. you to be on here because you are like <laughs> to ask the, the, the you were the one that we had to have on you you know your stuff you were the expert in
2: this and oh goodness, gracious. thank you yeah we definitely just, wanted uh, it to have was you my on. pleasure i i enjoyed you both the forum is excellent it's great to share ideas uh feelings and um and and again it's all about the learning mm-hmm. when you know we listen to each other and that's how we learn you can Maybe, maybe not. What if? But it's all about the learning. So that was great. Thank you, guys. Oh, yeah. well, well, welcome. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have back on. So. Yeah, yeah, and no opinion on here is ever wrong at all.
0: Like everybody, just we like to have it as a place that is kind of
1: unless it's common. my opinion, Mary, that's it's always wrong. She's
0: still trying to get me to swear. It's
1: <laughs> <That's> true, though. <laughs> no opinions ever wrong as long as it's hers. That's okay. the story. Mm-hmm. I said it, but no, so so coming attractions like we always do. So we we going going in talking about secession next week, right? Yep. Um we'll be talking about that. And so we'll be moving on to this.
0: And then uh, after that, we are, will have our Valentine's Day episode, w- which will be dating profiles of the generals.
1: Of the Civil Generals, which will be fun, yeah. a fun little camp thing little thing we'll do. And we'll be doing our uh, another reminder, the book club is coming. We have a date of March 31st. We'll be doing the book club, we'll be talking about Eric Schleinlein Black Iron Mercy book. Mm-hmm. So Everyone jump on as as well. We've talked about that. Any final words from you, Mary?
0: This was awesome. Thank you so much, Lisa, for uh, we wanted to do this for a while. And it's great for us to finally nerd out <laughs> over something like this and, and to talk about it and to give more of a story to this tragic event in American history and hopefully get some people. Uh, the one thing I want to say is, you know, if you can get this book, get A Sister's Memoir by Asia Booth Clark and read it because it is it's going to give you so much insight into who John Wilkes Booth was. It's going to give you a better understanding of the assassination. And if you're someone who studies Lincoln, I highly recommend reading it because it's going to help you understand him a little bit better too. The, the thing we always say here is read, question what you read and read even more and just gain as much knowledge as you can. Yep.
1: Read as many different books as you can. It's, it's, yeah. Everyone's got a different spin. We about Terry Alfred's book. We talked about Coppin's book. Oh, yeah. There's so many books on the subject.
2: This is all there is on yep. on, really on her. This is, you know, this is what we have. So, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and like you said, it, it's an excellent read. It's what drew me in, in 2012. It was a time when Civil War battles were coming close to 150. 2015, we had the 150th anniversary. And if you can imagine, I was actually at Ford's Theater for the 150th. I actually got a ticket.
0: That is so cool. I know a few people who were there for that.
2: Unbelievable. She drew me in. The fact that there may be letters that I might've inadvertently or I inadvertently just stumbled upon just makes it a closer issue for me, a closer sensibility for her and to her. Um, I can't describe it other than, other than that, you know, she drew me in and now maybe 140 years later, I may have found something that or I did find something of hers. Mm-hmm. That's, you awesome. guys are right. It's not coincidence. It's not. do
1: mm-hmm. no such touch things. Don't
2: touch it. Thank yeah. you. You guys were and what
1: yeah. And what, one of the books we got we gotta enable Mary's, we gotta enable the nameless and faces of the civil war. Yeah. By the great Lee Samio. Yeah, That's I, enable that book. I've so. actually
0: like cheated a little and read some of the stuff in it for doing the course. So
1: so definitely, I, I
0: definitely. I ask if you like it, because a lot be like, oh my god. Yeah, no, I lo- <laughs> no, I, I I love it actually. It's,
2: yeah. yeah, definitely. But
0: check it out. You know, check it, it out. It's on
2: Amazon because. and uh, Barnes and Noble, and it, it's everywhere. All and if my you're website. Canadian
0: like me, it is available at Indigo, which is our Canadian version of Barnes and Noble. They are selling it there. Amazon.ca was i when i, Lisa, find do, there, what, I like, do you know what do you know
1: amazon it has five stars rated on amazon not 4.8 4.5 yep you got a perfect score
0: you know <laughs> thank you guys you're awesome
1: but, but anyway yeah check check definitely check it out check it out so lisa's lisa's book is the new england patriots of uh of, of, the, of the book so yeah. Almost perfect, but close enough. Yeah, well. <laughs> Maybe next year again. So we are looking forward
0: to your course and doing that. Thank you again for joining us tonight. Um, Darren, do you have any parting thoughts?
1: Nope. Just that was a great time to talk about this. It's, yep. a, it's a subject that sometimes people have a tough time talking about, but I think it's all about personifying and um, talking about these people as people looking beyond the headlines and just trying to find out what makes people tick. And he's someone who certainly draws a lot of emotions out of people when you really go into it just to sort of find out, you know, the genesis of the whole thing. And it's, a, it's an interesting study to your point. Lisa, it's a real American tragedy uh, and it's, mm-hmm. that's it still being felt today, but, but like anything else, you can't hide from history, darkest parts of history shine the most light on history, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, that, so you have to, you have to really study this stuff to really appreciate it to, to learn the whole thing. So hope everybody liked it. I know we did. So I know um, it's great to have Lisa on as well.
0: Yep. So, um, Lisa, thank you again for joining us. So, everybody, thank you for listening. And we will be doing our usual Facebook Live at ten a.m. If y'all are listening to this, Um, and as Darren said, we've got a few episodes, different episodes coming down uh, the pike for you guys. So, on behalf of Darren and our guest Lisa, everybody have an awesome Saturday, and we will see you all again soon. Bye.
1: On the other side, peace out. Bye. Bye.